Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 52. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind it is a truth how long you don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Steve and I have a special treat for you this podcast. Our guest reader, Lisa Michelle Hess, is not only a dear friend, but a great writer. From the Passageways short story compilation we mention now and then, she'll be reading one of her stories, Invisible Thread, which also happens to be the longest story in the collection. Rather than serializing Invisible Thread, as we've done with Treasure Island and Winds of Wyoming, Lisa will read the entire story for you today. So, sit back and enjoy. Michael Johnson was about to take the stairs when a football wobbled to a stop at his feet. He recognized the two boys who were tossing the ball around. They lived in one of the condos down the street from his office. The nearest kid yelled at him, a rakish grin on his face, throw it back, mister. Michael had talked several times with the boy, who wasn't old enough to be complicated. He was irrepressibly confident, and Michael liked that. He set his coffee and briefcase down, picked up the ball, and ran his thumb along the threads. Fainting an underhand toss to the kid closest to him, he yelled, go long, to his friend down the street, who backed up, running sideways. Michael launched the football in a perfect spiral, straight and true, right into the boy's outstretched hands. Both boys leaped into the air, shouting and jabbing their fists high above their heads. Michael smiled. His training was useful in so many ways. Do it again, the boys yelled. But Michael just waved, gathered his things, and climbed the steps of the old brownstone that like him, was attractive, but not too handsome, and went unnoticed by most people. Even the name on the tarnished brass plaque next to the door, Johnson & Associates Investments, LLP, was not legible from the street. It could only be read from the top of the steps, where no one other than Michael had any reason to venture. Balancing his coffee cup on his briefcase, he punched in the combination that he alone knew and pushed his way inside. Though he'd been gone for less than a week, the old building smelled musty. He set the briefcase and coffee on his desk and dropped into his chair with a sigh. Would it be today? Would he finally have the answer he'd been waiting for? Travel and other obligations had kept him from reviewing the digital videos stacked neatly in the safe. Even before he was assigned to Elise and her grandmother, his superiors in the home office had determined his mission was probably pointless. They believed that even if the elderly woman once knew valuable information, she would have forgotten it by now. Compared to his other projects, the recordings were low priority, yet he was addicted to the information they supplied. Due to reasons he refused to examine too closely, he had yet to include the grandmother's most recent revelations in his reports. After all, his handler probably didn't expect anything more, if he ever thought of the grandmother at all. For Michael, however, this project had assumed a life of its own. It seemed as if the data and images on the recordings, coupled with the stories Elise shared with him each night, were conspiring to make him more introspective about human relationships than he normally allowed himself to be. 
What was the invisible thread that connected certain hearts across years, miles, memories? He twisted the thick gold band on the ring finger of his left hand. When he chose to marry Elise, the union had been approved at the highest levels. He told them marriage was his best chance at gaining the grandmother's confidence and fulfilling his mission, and they believed him. He'd even convinced his handler, the closest thing he had to a friend, that marrying Elise was just part of the job. However, his superior had warned him such an attachment was risky. He needed to keep Elise at an emotional arm's length. That was 10 years ago. Michael sat back and massaged his temples. The prospect of finally completing this mission should have made him ecstatic. Instead, he felt as if his head was about to explode. He went across the hall to the bathroom and splashed cold water on his face. It didn't help. He dried his face before he wandered back into his office where his hulking black metal floor safe loomed in the corner, a secure repository for the tapes. He would leave them there like he did most days. His wife kept him up to date on the story her grandmother, Elaine, was slowly revealing, and he learned much more through Elise's retelling of the narrative than by viewing the videos. He was able to read between the lines of Elaine's story in a way that he, with all his skill, could not. Michael paced the floor. Even with his wife's unwitting assistance, he still wasn't able to put all the pieces of the grandmother's past together. He plopped onto his leather sofa and watched dust motes float in the ray of sunshine that streamed through the high window. Closing his eyes, he calmed his breathing and focused on the facts he'd pieced together from previous operatives' reports, a handful of old letters, the daily recordings, and the few details Elaine had revealed over the years. He'd mulled over the same body of evidence many times before, but lately he'd begun to feel as if his life depended on solving the mystery of her childhood years. From what he knew, the grandmother was born on September 15, 1910, in Crow Wing County, Minnesota. Her birth certificate christened her simply Dickinson, female, as anyone with an Ancestry.com membership could discover. Her mother was 20 years old. Her father, a mining engineer, was 40. Elaine believed they were married at the time. By 1915, her parents had separated, and her father, Howard, had spirited her away to a gold mining camp in Sacramento, California. He called her Beatrice Viola and taught her to fold his clothes to shape her letters, and that fire was hot and could burn. Old pictures and correspondence left no doubt she was precocious and beautiful. She was the apple of his eye, and he was the hero of her life. When Elaine spoke of her father, a smile played on her lips like he was a secret only she knew, even as she revealed everything she could remember about him. At least, she said it was all she remembered. In 1917, they sailed from San Francisco to Japan on the steamer Victoria. Elaine was the only child on the ship, and most of the men aboard wore uniforms. The board sailors played with her and taught her a rhyme. Kaiser Bill went up the hill to take a look at France. Kaiser Bill went down the hill with bullets in his pants. They traveled to Yokohama, Japan, then to Vladivostok, Russia. From there, they made their way by train to Chita, Russia, known as the City of Exiles, Chita was perched on the eastern edge of the maelstrom that was to the United States the war to end all wars. For the Russians, it was a confusing swirl of whites and reds and shades of November gray, which, when the conflict finally settled, changed that country and the world forever. But Elaine was only seven years old when they arrived in Russia. How could she remember anything but snow and horse-drawn sleighs and a handsome, dashing father who told her everything would be all right? And wasn't this a marvelous adventure? By 1918, her father was dead. 
and she was living in Seattle with her grandmother, Ione, a fine work dressmaker for wealthy women. Ione called her Elaine Beatrice. Elaine stuck, but Beatrice was dropped and forgotten until recently. Elaine Beatrice Dickinson Alden was 102 years old, codenamed the grandmother. Every day, she told Elise one new detail about her life as a child, putting flesh on the bare bones of the facts in his file, moving closer and closer to the answer he was waiting for. Why now, after all this time, was she finally filling in the blanks? Because, dear, she told Elise with a piercing look, next year, I won't remember anymore. Michael checked his watch. His wife should be arriving at Elaine's any minute, and he didn't have the patience to wait, not today. He moved to his chair and switched on what looked like an investment consultant's computer. However, when the large screen came to life, he could see the interior of each room in Elaine's house. He focused on the stairwell leading to her bedroom. Elise ran up the short flight of stairs, deftly skirting the electric elevator chair attached to the wall, and stopped at the doorway to her grandmother's bedroom. As she often did, Elise took time to study Elaine, who was perched on the bed's edge, clad in pajama bottoms and naked from the waist up, her back to the door. By this point, his wife was familiar with every curve and wrinkle of her grandmother's ravaged by life body, and Michael tried to see Elaine through Elise's eyes. The smallpox had left scars, the children had left stretch marks. She'd lost one breast to cancer when she was in her 60s, and the other to its return 20 years later. Yet, as her grandmother straightened and stretched like a cat, Michael watched Elise smile. According to her, Elaine's beauty was timeless, classic. Based on the photos he'd seen, she'd always had a certain grace about her. The pictures left no doubt she'd once been quite beautiful, like a darker-haired twin to his fair, blonde wife. He glanced at the tray beside the grandmother's bed, where her current life was scattered. He'd visited her enough to have the tray's contents memorized, hearing aid, eyeglasses, dishes from her evening snack, a half-full tumbler of water, books and magazines, and remote controls for the television and the DVD player. He could almost smell the scent in the room, something like burnt grass and oranges, and it made him smile. The grandmother refused to smell like an old person, and if she couldn't accomplish her goal through sheer force of will, she would use fire and pungent incense. Good morning, Graham. Elisa's voice was raised as she crossed the room to the window and opened the curtains. How are you this beautiful day? Without the hearing aid and glasses, Elaine didn't seem to notice Elise until sunlight spilled into the room. She lifted her gaze from the blouse Elise had left folded on the end of the bed the night before. Her eyes, normally so sharp, squinted, a bewildered look. Michael clenched his fist. Was senility setting in? If so, she might never reveal the secrets he'd waited 10 years to learn. After a few tense seconds, he was relieved to see Elaine's pursed mouth curve into a delighted smile. She cleared her throat. There's my happy girl. I'm fine today. Just slow. Elise nodded with a sympathetic smile. Walking into Elaine's room, her world was like stepping into a time warp. Something as simple as writing a letter was scheduled a day in advance and only accomplished with dogged persistence. Getting to the bathroom and back was a major strategic accomplishment. This was the first time Michael had heard Elaine acknowledge her challenges, though, the closest she'd come to a complaint. Elise said her grandmother's courageous spirit was the reason she was so easy to care for, despite the crazy, childish whims that came with old age. Michael asked, how was she today? Elise drew a breath and released it. 
She'd been distracted all evening. He guessed she was still a little lost in the world her grandmother had created with her story during their daily visit. Slow, she finally responded, as if she'd just heard an echo of his words. He let a beat pass. Slow? How? She pressed her lips together. Michael watched his wife mentally remind herself for the millionth time that this was the reason she fell in love with him. He was the only man she'd ever met who actually wanted to know what was going on in her head. She'd told him this. Over the course of their marriage, however, she'd become less willing to share her thoughts, as if she expected him to read her mind. The irony. Still, he was obsessed with her inner world, and he would expose it word by begrudging word if he had to. He smiled as she literally shrugged off her irritation. Because she still loves me. Because she knows how many women would kill for a husband who actually listens. Elise refreshed her lemonade from the pitcher on the table in front of them, took a long swallow and closed her eyes for a moment, remembering. Michael recalled Elaine doing the very same thing earlier in the day when his wife sat down beside her after breakfast. Elise sighed, opened her eyes, and proceeded to tell him her version of the latest installment in her grandmother's story. They'd arrived at the Keystone Hotel in San Francisco sometime in the spring of 1917. The corporate bustle of the town was impressive after the rough-and-tumble mining camps from which they'd come. The streets were wide and the buildings tall. To Beatrice, everyone appeared to be dressed in their Sunday best. She was too little to comprehend how travel-worn and poor she and her father looked in comparison as they left the train from Sacramento and made their way past the shops and businesses that lined 4th Street. But Howard was apparently aware. Before finding the keystone, they stopped at one of the shops along the way and were fitted for a full wardrobe of fine clothing. The fabrics, velvets, satins, laces, and linens that felt as soft as water against her skin were more beautiful than anything Beatrice had ever imagined, and she had quite an imagination. Had they suddenly become wealthy, she wondered? But they must have, for everyone, after a few words of commerce with her tall, handsome papa, seemed eager to serve them. When all the fittings were finished and orders given, they continued on through the crowded streets. Her father protected her as best he could, yet she was occasionally bumped and jostled by drunken sailors, self-important businessmen, and women dressed in garish finery. It didn't bother her much. She knew Papa would keep her safe, and besides, she was just like him, always ready for adventure. Howard said it often, and Beatrice agreed. Anything was better than boredom. Finally, they stepped through tall double doors into the quiet coolness of the keystone. It took time to adjust to the dim lighting. Beatrice closed her eyes and relished the feeling of uncrowded space and the comforting smells of floor wax and furniture polish, the sense of her grandmother's house. Her remembrance of home was almost a sob, but then she opened her eyes and all thoughts of her past were forgotten. A white marble floor stretched before her like a sheet of ice, reminding her of twilight on a perfect winter day while sparkling crystals dripped from the chandeliers hanging high above her head. Snowy white plaster molding frothed at the tops of walls and spread across the ceiling. In contrast, ebony scrolled metal railing accompanied the stairs to the upper rooms. Deep brown mahogany edged the marble floor, rose in wains coating halfway up the white walls, and covered the front of the curved registration desk where her father led her. The wood was polished to such a sheen she could see her reflection. She admired herself and her new dress while her father conversed with the man behind the tall desk. When she grew bored, she stood on her tiptoes, but she couldn't see over the top. The bellman was finally called. He took their bags and led them to an elegant two-bedroom suite on the second floor. 
Beatrice wandered slowly through the new quarters, touching the green velvet-backed chairs, smiling at the gilded mirrors. The suite had a sitting room and was cleaner than any place she'd inhabited for years. Not many days later, a woman named Danny joined them in their suite. She was Irish Indian and had been raised in India. Her copper-colored skin was accented by long, silky black hair, and she spoke with a soft, musical accent Beatrice loved. Howard told everyone Danny was Beatrice's nurse, and indeed Danny was very nurturing. She taught Beatrice how to read, how to wear the beautiful clothing that was delivered to them, and what was appropriate and inappropriate behavior when dining with the many society people who met with her father. Beatrice, little as she was, understood there was a fondness between Howard and Danny that went well beyond a business relationship. She also somehow knew she wasn't to question it. One day, Howard entered their suite earlier than usual. His brow was furrowed and he appeared to be lost in contemplation, as if he barely noticed he'd entered the room. But then he blinked, looked up, and seemed to become aware of his surroundings. To the little girl's relief, his solemn expression quickly transformed into the mock seriousness he used when he was discussing her studies and deportment. And how is the child today, Danny? Danny smiled. Howard, you know she is lovely, a pleasure to teach. I have never seen a child learn so quickly. In a few strides of his long legs, he was across the room and swinging Beatrice into the air to the delighted shrieks of the child. Well, of course, he laughed. She's a Dickinson, is she not? Their indulgence didn't spoil her. She basked and grew in the pleasure they took in her, like the petals of a flower reaching out to morning sun. Later that night, as Beatrice lay in her bed, listening to Howard and Danny talk in the sitting room, she heard for the first time the name of the ship they would sail on, the Victoria. There's a group of railroad men we'll meet in Yokohama, and we'll continue on to Vladivostok with them, Howard said. They'll look like regular army down to the uniforms and all, but William says not. They're attached to the State Department. Why on earth are they sending them on the mission? Ostensibly to help the Russians modernize their system, but William thinks it's mainly to ensure the supplies the U.S. has stocked in Vladivostok and the other rail stations along the Trans-Siberian Railway don't fall into German hands, if the Russians make peace with them. And it looks like they might. Danny sighed. I can't keep track of what country is doing what. It's all such a mess. It is that, Howard agreed. After a time, Danny asked, are you sure it's safe? What about Beatrice? It's perfectly safe, Danny. Do you think I'd risk the well-being of either one of you? Howard's voice took on his usual confident tone, which relieved Beatrice. She didn't like the fear and uncertainty she heard in Danny's voice. She focused on Papa's voice instead. It's business as usual for American corporations, he said and diplomats in Yokohama, Vladivostok, and Petrograd. Our proposed route is the same one we'd hope to follow after all. My part will be nothing but a babysitting mission for a few days. I'll ensure the package gets on the train and then off again and into the right hands. Then we'll be done and can continue on as we planned. His voice took on a tender note. Really, darling, there's nothing to fear. I think we're the only people the Russians trust right now. They certainly don't trust the British or the Germans. With good reason, Howard. Danny sounded angry. Their trust will be the least we have to lose if they find out what you're up to. Elise stopped and Michael asked, although he already knew the answer, what was he up to? She laughed and rose to clear away the dishes. I have no idea. That's where she ended the story. You know, it's almost like she's reluctant to tell me. Maybe you shouldn't pressure her. What do you mean? Elise frowned. I'm not pressuring her. What was he doing? He held up a hand, smoothly covering his confusion. I just mean Russia was has to be a bad memory for her. Her father died there, right? And she nearly died as well. She shook her head. I think she likes to talk about her adventures. You know, Graham. 
She wouldn't have brought up the subject if it was a bad memory. Accentuate the positive is one of her favorite songs. Elise shrugged and reached for his plate. I do sense she's reluctant to talk about parts of the story, though. It's almost like she's waiting for something. Elise helped Elaine to the bathroom and back, settled her into the double recliner where she spent most of the day, and prepared a tray with the hot tea and bran muffin she'd requested for her afternoon snack. She watered Elaine's prized violets on the dresser, vacuumed the floor, changed the sheets on her bed, and finished with a plumping of the pillows. Elaine motioned to her with an incense stick. Lie down on the bed and take a load off, dear. She lit the stick with a flourish. A woman should put her feet up for 30 minutes in the middle of every day. Elise smiled. He read that in A Better Homes and Gardens in 1959. Oh no, Elise. Elaine looked serious. That's wisdom direct from your great-grandmother I own. No matter how busy I was, I took the time every day of my life to follow her advice. Elise held up her hand. I know what you're going to say. Next. Midday rests are the reason you've lived this many years. She chuckled. I say you've lived this long because you're so stubborn. But she climbed onto the bed and leaned back against the high pillows with a sigh. Through the window above the bed, Michael could see trees swaying in a breeze. Fall light and shadows rippled across his wife's motionless form. Elise was pretty, but in a different way than Elaine. The grandmother, with her slightly slanted eyes that were still a shocking sapphire blue, had an exotic look about her. In her younger years, her long, shiny hair had been almost black. She'd had a full bosom and a tiny waist and dressed to accentuate both. In contrast, Elise was petite, athletic, and fair. She rarely gave a thought to what she wore or how she looked. When the two were together, however, the fact that they were related was unmistakable. They had the same eyes and nose, the same full lips. But more than that, the way they carried themselves was similar. They were both relaxed, yet self-possessed and utterly in control. Women who were never hurried, but yet always on time. They inspired in people an undeniable desire to please them. The main difference between the two was that while Elaine was quite conscious of her power, Elise seemed unaware of the spell she cast on those around her. Now, where was I? Elaine asked. You were telling me about Grandpa Tobias. Ah, uh, yes. He was the most handsome man I'd seen since I lost Papa. Elaine smiled, so kind and so intelligent. He barely had an eighth grade education, but he was always reading and learning, and he had a sixth sense about the next thing like I've never seen. Michael knew Tobias's history as well as he knew the grandmother's. The man's ancestral roots went back to colonial days, and his Puritan work ethic had equaled Elaine's drive. They made an unbeatable entrepreneurial team, developing businesses and selling products together for 60 years. Eventually, they retired to a cozy two-story on a wooded street. My only quarrel with your grandfather, Elaine said, was that he hated to travel. The farthest I could get him to go was the shortest route possible to the ocean two or three times a year. She shook her head. He was a homebody for sure, which chafed at me for a while. But then he was such fine company. Tobias was always thinking about something new to make or to buy or to sell. He became my adventure. Do you think Grandpa reminded you of your father? Elise asked. Is that partly what made you fall in love with him? Elaine was quiet. Finally, she nodded, perhaps. Yes, perhaps. Although, of course, Papa loved to travel. He was an engineer, and he'd worked repairing diamond drill bits for gold mines all over the world before I was born. He just happened to meet my mother one day when he was home visiting his parents. He'd been working in the wild Northland, Alaska, and before that, Africa. He was in his 40s when I was born, which was why he was too old for the draft when the U.S. entered the war in 1917. However, he was already in government service. Michael leaned closer to the monitor. She'd made the comment almost as an afterthought, 
and it took Elise a moment to catch the implication. Government service? How? I thought your trip to Russia had to do with selling mining and drilling equipment. Well, Elaine seemed to be choosing her words carefully. Yes, at first. And selling equipment to the Russians continued to be the reason he gave for the trip. Graham, Elise sat up and turned to Elaine. You're killing me. Why did you go to Russia in 1917? Did it have to do with the war? Michael reached for the phone. Was the grandmother about to say the words he'd waited 10 years to hear? Then why this nearly undeniable urge to interrupt the conversation before she changed their lives forever? He sat back, shaking his head. Was he losing his mind? Besides, Elise was right. Elaine was a stubborn woman who would eventually say what she wanted to say. He watched her consider her granddaughter across the room. Oh, Elise, do you really want to know? It's ancient history. What does it matter now? Learning about your past is important to me. Elise got up from the bed and sat next to her grandmother on the recliner. And sharing your life story obviously matters to you. Graham, I really want to know. All right. Elaine smiled, approvingly, as if Elise had passed some test. I'll tell you. But first, you have to answer a question of mine. It's one I've had on my mind for quite some time. Of course. Anything. I don't like to mess about in things that aren't my business, and I'll admit this is none of my business. But at least only the two of us are left of our family. I've often wondered why you haven't any children. Michael folded his arms and waited to hear her response. Elise's smile faded. She opened her mouth, then closed it. Elaine squeezed her hand. I don't mean to pry, but it's not that you can't have them, is it? His wife slowly shook her head. I can have children. At least, I have no reason to think I can't. Well, then what is it? Don't you want them? I've heard all kinds of women in their 40s are having children these days. Elisa's gaze moved to the window, as if she was trying to make out something in the distance. I don't really know. I wanted kids when I was younger, before Dad was killed and Mom got sick. She shrugged. I always pictured Mom enjoying them with me, helping me bring them up. Instead, I ended up taking care of her, and, and that was enough. Elaine nodded. And now you're taking care of me. Elise knelt beside Elaine and looked up into her eyes. Graham, you know I love to spend time with you. I'd be here every day even if you didn't need my help. Elaine chuckled. That's probably true, but you still haven't answered my question. Like a child, Elise laid her head on her grandmother's lap, and Elaine rested her hand on her red gold curls. That's because I don't know the answer, Elise said. I mean, look at the world. Is it really fair to bring a child into it? And Michael travels so much, I'd practically be a single mother. Trust me, the world's no worse than it's ever been. Elaine lifted her granddaughter's chin with a finger. I know what you've suffered, but you mustn't let your father's accident and your mother's illness color your world. Death is a part of life, and children accept that easier than adults. Elise sat beside Elaine again. Is it really that easy? Was it for you? Well, Elaine allowed, not easy, but simple. We're the ones who complicate it. Besides, you'll create your children's world. It's all in how you teach them to see it. You teach them to focus on the good and not the bad. And then as they get older, to make the bad and the good better as the opportunity arises. Is that what you did? Elaine patted Elisa's hand. You know it is, and how your mother taught you as well. And that's how you'll teach your own children. But Michael, does he not want children? Elise looked away. We've never talked about children. Michael groaned remembering the handful of times she brought up the subject and he'd immediately distracted her. But that was before. You've never discussed it? Even before you married? 
Elaine sounded shocked. Elise raised her chin, defensive. Well, of course, in a general kind of way, but never in any definite way, like some people do. Elaine appeared stricken by the information. That's so odd, she said, as if to herself. I thought you told him everything. He's happy the way we are, I suppose. At least he never mentions children. Michael was surprised by the longing in her voice. He hadn't realized. And you, Elise, are you happy? What if Michael wasn't traveling so much? He won't always travel, will he? Would you think about starting a family then? Oh, I think about it, Graham. I think about it all the time. She smiled and gave her grandmother a wink. Now, I've answered your question. Your turn. Elaine gave Elise a searching look. Well, all right, but let's see. First, I have to back up. How much do you know about the war? Do they even teach children about it in school any longer? These days, I suppose it's all Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan. Elise laughed. I'm ashamed to admit, Graham, I don't know much about World War I. That war was over almost before it began for the U.S., wasn't it? The First World War. Elaine rubbed her forehead. Well, like Danny said, it was a mess. A huge, reeking mess that twisted the world, then hung it out to dry. And my dear, the world hasn't been the same since. Though the call came at 9 a.m. London time, it kept Michael at the office past midnight. He expected Elise to be asleep by the time he arrived home. Yet, light spilled through the partially opened bedroom door. He moved closer, slowly, quietly, and peeked in. Dressed in one of his t-shirts, she sat on the floor surrounded by pictures and mementos from one of the mini bins of family archives she stored under their bed. Black tights hugged her legs. Wisps of red gold escaped her headband and coiled in tendrils around her face. He could smell her vanilla almond lotion from the doorway. As always, the warm, sweet scent awakened his longing, as did the roundness of her breasts beneath his shirt, the stray ringlets just brushing the line of her jaw, and the way the tights hugged her athletic legs like a second skin. Every part of him responded to every part of her so strongly it verged on pain. This was one of the few facts about himself he'd never hidden from her. She didn't believe him. Whenever he mentioned how beautiful he found her, she laughed it off like he'd just delivered an embarrassing pickup line. She didn't understand the hold she had on him, and that was good. Elise was aware of him watching her, though. He was a professional, yet sneaking up on his wife was nearly impossible. She lifted those blue eyes to his and smiled. Well... Look who finally decided to come home. His heart skipped a beat, but he just said, London conference call, and moved past her toward the closet, removing his jacket as he went. You're up late. Way too late. She gestured at the mess around her. I was trying to find a letter Graham gave me for the archives years ago. She said it was the last letter her father wrote before he died. She talked about it today. He responded from the depths of the walk-in closet. Did you find it? Yeah, I knew right where it was, but then I started looking at this stuff, these pictures, and I can't stop. Look, Michael, do you remember this? He poked his head out, and she held up an old photograph, one he'd shot the day they met. All the pictures in the bin were at least a decade old. Newer ones were digital. They went onto a compact disc and were never seen again. He loosened his tie and stooped to kiss her upturned lips. Tempted to fulfill his earlier fantasy, he lingered, but then he remembered the picture and the possibility his wife might have a new revelation for him. Help me stand, Michael. I've been sitting cross-legged for too long. He helped her to her feet, kissed her again, and took the picture from her. This one, snapped a few days after he arrived in town, was nearly 20 years old and beginning to fade. In it, Elise and the grandmother sat on a park bench surrounded by squirrels and pigeons. He'd never forgotten that day, which also happened to be Elise's birthday. 
Elaine had hired a nurse for the day to care for her daughter, Elisa's mother, who was slowly wasting away from a mysterious brain disease. Elaine had treated Elise to lunch, and then they'd walked in the park. To Michael's dismay, the older woman caught sight of him watching with his camera and gestured him over. Take our picture, young man, she commanded. We never get a picture with the both of us in it. Elise looked pale and tired in the photo, but she was smiling happily at the camera, at him. The look on Elaine's face was harder to read. Looking at the picture, Michael realized he'd tripped into trouble the first time he saw Elise smile. Most people faked their way through life, pretending to be something they were not, hiding their true feelings, their true values and priorities. Those people were simple for Michael to read. He'd been trained to discover their secrets, and he did so easily. He also found them boring. But when Elise smiled that day, he'd been blown away. It was all there in her eyes, the tragedy she lived through each day with her mother, as well as, inexplicably, hope and joy. Her truth was written across her face and in every beautiful move she made, and she didn't care who knew it. Honesty, like Elise, always surprised him. Somehow, he'd ended up spending the afternoon with the two of them, and of course, he had to see Elise again to give her the picture. The rest was, as they say, history. He still felt a little guilty about his good fortune and how they'd so easily let him into their simple love. He'd been able to spend all these years as a part of their family. He knew he was taking advantage of them, but he didn't take them for granted. He'd done his best to honor and care for both of them. Of course, I remember that day. He put his arm around her, and I remember you apologized for feeding the squirrels right next to the no feeding the wildlife sign. But she's 80 years old, you said, and if she wants to feed the squirrels, then she gets to feed the squirrels. Elise smiled. He knew she knew what he was going to say next, but he continued anyway. If I had known then the number of times I would have to hear that excuse, he switched to a high voice to mimic hers. She's 92 years old, and if she wants me to make Bavarian cream pie from scratch for her birthday, then I'll figure out how to make Bavarian cream pie. She's 96 years old and never goes anywhere, but if she wants red patent leather sandals, then I'm buying her red patent leather sandals. Elise laughed and pushed him onto the bed. Oh, stop. You know you love her too. She flopped on top of him, but he rolled the two of them over. I know I love you, he said. And for the rest of the evening, he didn't care if she had a thought in her head. Elise, he said much later as they lay on the bed, having untangled themselves. Hmm, she responded drowsily. What was the letter you were looking for? Oh, just something she wanted me to take to her tomorrow. Something to do with her father. Elise opened her eyes and turned toward him. She told me the most amazing story today. About what? They must have picked up the conversation later when he left the office to run an errand across town. She turned her back to Michael and slipped into the curve of his body. About why they were in Russia in 1917. He blinked, now wide awake, but continued to breathe slowly, evenly. He was trained for this. Really? He kept his voice neutral, but interested. Why were they there? Oh, she was falling back to sleep. It's too long to tell you now. She yawned. I'll tell you tomorrow. After a minute, he said, Elise, but she was asleep. His wife stood 10 feet away, a pink blanketed bundle in her arms. She smiled her beautiful, playful smile and without any warning, tossed the bundle toward him. Michael shouted, no, and held out his hands. Against all odds, he caught the child, his child, and exhaled in relief. Once again, his training had come through for him. But when he looked down, he didn't see a baby in his arms. He saw a football. Elise chuckled. Throw it back, Michael. Throw it back. 
He awoke with a start. Morning sun poured into their bedroom window, illuminating a still-sleeping Elise next to him. He climbed out of bed without waking her, pulled on some sweats, and headed for the kitchen. He knew the smell of fresh ground coffee brewing would lure her from the bedroom, and it worked. Bleary-eyed, she materialized in the kitchen just as the coffee was ready. Elise picked up her mug from the counter and held it out to him. He kissed her cheek before pouring her a full cup. She grunted and stumbled to the sofa where she curled against the armrest, all the while watching the hu- clutching the huge cup with both hands. Once settled, she raised it to her lips. Michael tossed the Wall Street Journal he'd been reading onto the coffee table and sat in the easy chair across from her, mug in hand. She gave him a dirty look. You kept me awake until 2 a.m. He lifted an eyebrow. You're the one who waited up for me in that sexy outfit. <laughs> yeah, she snorted real sexy. If only you knew. He drank some coffee. Just thinking about it makes me want to... She lifted a hand. Don't go there, Michael. I need to shower and head over to help grandmother. On top of that, he started a story and then promptly fell asleep. Elise cocked her head. What story? Something about Elaine's father and why they went to Russia. Oh, yeah. Her gaze moved to the window, and she took another sip of coffee. So, spill it, he said casually, as if the grandmother's story was barely more interesting to him than the newspaper he'd been reading. She gave him a resentful look that clearly said he was greedy beyond words for wanting even more of her than she'd given him the night before. But he could be merciless. How merciless? She had no idea. And patient. Finally, she put her coffee down, stretched her legs out on the coffee table, crossed them, and began the part of the story he hadn't yet viewed. It was really just a war between men trying to build empires, Elaine had said, political ones and financial ones. But the world had become too small for the empire builders, and they'd started to stumble over each other. At that, she'd shaken her head in disgust. The British and French only cared about the Russians insofar as they were keeping a substantial portion of the German army busy on the Eastern Front. If the Russians stopped fighting, the Germans would move their troops to the Western Front, which was territory the Allies were just barely defending. They didn't give a fig for what was happening to the Russian people or the fact that the Bolsheviks had seized power and assassinated the royal family. The Allies were content to let them continue their little Marxist experiment because they didn't believe it would last long. From a political standpoint, they thought of the situation as similar to children taking over a playroom. They would have been content to wait until it all devolved into anarchy. So what if the Russian people were starving to death? Elaine took a minute to catch her breath and drink some tea. The subject seemed to have given her new energy. But the Bolsheviks were threatening peace with the Germans. They'd gotten into power by promising to extricate Russia from the war, and then they actually started to negotiate with the Germans. Well, Elaine chuckled, this was a nightmare scenario for the Allies, especially the British, so they hit upon a plan. They decided there was no negotiating with the Bolsheviks, although they continued to pretend diplomacy, and determined the only option to change the situation to their advantage was through covert means. Money was to be their savior. They found a conservative Russian financier who already owned substantial interests in a number of Russia's largest banks. He offered to help the British appropriate the major banks in Russia and give the Allies controlling seats on the boards. Elaine stopped. Do you see what they were doing, Elise? Her granddaughter nodded. They would own, well, they would own Russian's economy, wouldn't they? Exactly, Elaine said. No Russian government would be able to function without their say-so. If it had worked, the scheme would have turned the Russian empire into just another colony of the British empire. But how does all this relate to you and your father? This was the British, right? What did Howard have to do with it? I mean, was the US even in the war yet? 
Just barely, Elaine said, but they weren't anywhere near the Eastern Front. And they certainly hadn't declared war on Russia, which was why what happened next took place in the utmost secrecy. There were many flaws in the plan, the biggest being the Russian financier needed a huge loan in order to buy out the current board members. The value of the ruble was plummeting like a shooting star, and the board members in question wanted British pounds so they could flee the country. Unfortunately, the British, after four years of war, didn't have the extra cash to spend on taking over a country. They needed a loan too. And who do you think they went to for financing? The United States, Elise responded, eyes wide. Right. And the U.S. was more than willing to comply. But of course, the Americans demanded some guarantee their money would be put to good use. The British say the Russian, who was in Siberia at the time, guaranteed the loan with hundreds of thousands of rubles he sent with a messenger to the British embassy in Petrograd. But the messenger never arrived, or so the story goes. The problem with that account is, as I said, no one would have accepted rubles as a guarantee against anything at that point. None of that mattered anyway, Elaine said with a wave of her hand. What they all underestimated was the depth of weariness and disgust the Russian people had concerning the war. They would have handed over their country to the devil himself if he'd promised to get them out of the conflict. The Bolsheviks were the only ones who told them what they wanted to hear, so it wasn't long before the Bolsheviks simply nationalized all the banks. Trotsky's army defeated their Cossack enemies in the south, and the Allies fled Petrograd. Amazing, Elise said, but I still don't understand what this has to do with you. Elaine shrugged. Well, of course I didn't understand any of this as a child. It was all just a grand adventure. I was the only child on board that huge ship and had the run of the place. The younger sailors were my playmates. They spoiled me rotten, taught me deplorable language, and gave me candy when Danny wasn't looking. She smiled at the memory. One grand old British dame sailed with us. I don't know who she was, and I've never been able to locate the ship's manifest. But I remember her implying at dinner one night that it was an error for Papa to bring me along on the trip across the ocean. Why don't you simply send her to a convent, the woman asked, as direct and imperious as she always was whenever they encountered her. Like most adults, she seemed to believe small children didn't hear what adults said, and if they did hear, they didn't understand. Perhaps I should, Howard said, as if taking her seriously. Under the table, he gave the little girl's hand a squeeze. But then... Get along without my Beatrice? No, that would never do. She's my guardian angel, madam. And it was the way he said madam, very polite, but with a steely edge to his voice that sent a shiver through Beatrice. The woman never brought up the subject again. In Yokohama, Beatrice and Danny spent their days exploring the city via rickshaw and the surrounding countryside by train. The war seemed very far away. Their hotel was teeming with foreigners, mostly American and British businessmen and diplomats going about their business, just as Howard had said. One day, Howard came back to the hotel and announced they must pack their things. They would leave the next day. The Bolsheviks have decided to allow the railway men in after all, he announced to Danny, rubbing his hands together. We'll be sailing with them in the morning. Then it's just a matter of meeting up with our contact in Chita, picking up the rest of the equipment in Novonikolaevsk, and completing our business. Danny seemed much less enthusiastic than Beatrice's father. They're going ahead with the plan. Really? I've heard negotiations have broken down with the Germans, that the German forces are making their way toward Petrograd. She looked nervously toward Beatrice and then back at Howard. I've heard there's quite a bit of unrest in the country, she finished softly. Danny, you worry too much, Howard said. I've told them I won't go all the way to Petrograd, just to be sure we don't get in the middle of that mess. We'll be handing the package off at Novo Nikolaevsk and then heading back. It'll be fine. The two of you can even stay in Chita until I return if you'd like. 
I think that might be best, Danny said, and she sounded relieved. They arrived in Vladivostok in the dead of winter and immediately boarded a train headed northwest toward Chita and the edge of the Siberian frontier. To Beatrice, it was as if the war began while their train traveled from Vladivostok to their first stop on the Trans-Siberian Railway. They stepped off the train to stretch their legs and had to move aside quickly as uniformed Russian soldiers surged around them toward the train. Wounded and sick men lay or sat in clusters on the crowded platform. Some on stretchers were attended by Red Cross workers. The noise of war was shocking to her young ears. Wounded men groaned and cried. Uniformed soldiers shouted orders. Workers frantically loaded and unloaded cargo, which banged and crashed onto the platform near them. The air smelled salty and sour. Sweat mingled with refuse and blood. Beatrice felt Danny's hand tighten on hers, and Howard quickly bundled them back onto the train. He promised they would spend more time walking around at the next stop. But every stop was the same. More and more soldiers boarded the train until it was standing room only. Every station was filled with sick and wounded men and reverberated with cacophony and chaos. Seated safely between Danny and Howard, Beatrice heard snatches of their whispered words intermixed with snippets of other passengers' conversations. Howard, has the entire world come to Russia to fight? Danny asked. So many different uniforms. I've heard Japanese, Chinese, French, and Italian spoken, as well as English and Russian. What is everyone doing here? No one seems to know. Howard leaned over Beatrice to murmur in Danny's ear. I talked with one of the railway men on the ship. They don't know why they've been sent over, other than their presence is important to the American government. He shook his head. The Germans are advancing toward Petrograd, and I'm afraid this country is falling apart. Influenza and smallpox are on the rise, too, they say. All this happened while we were aboard ship. If I'd known... Beatrice couldn't hear the rest, but she could tell they were both worried. Even so, Howard joked and laughed with the soldiers and exchanged cigarettes for information and drinks from flasks they were passing between them. He never forgot Beatrice. Once, he pointed out the window at the pink and orange sunset that glowed above the mountains. Look how beautiful the sky is, Bee. He smiled warmly, kissed her forehead, and hugged her close. She could feel the tension in the two bodies that flanked her, though, and sensed Russia was not a safe place. At some point during the long train ride, she started to lose focus. By the time they reached their destination, she'd begun to feel alternately sluggish and then dizzily light. The rest of the trip seemed to take the form of a waking dream. They arrived in Chita at night. Danny helped Beatrice bundle into the fur-lined hat, muffler, and boots they'd purchased for her in Vladivostok. After she was lifted into a wagon, warm blankets were tucked around her. Then the driver shook the reins and the wagon started with a lurch. Encircled in Danny's arms, Beatrice remembered nothing more of the journey from the railway station. The next morning, she awoke to gray light coming through the window above her and the sound of children's laughter in the distance. Wrapped in thick blankets, she was lying on a pallet in the corner of a large room. A woman she didn't recognize was stirring a pot over a fire in the center, and her father and Danny were seated at a nearby table. Howard was speaking. I'm to meet my contact at a mine a few hours' ride from here. He took a bite of what might have been porridge and then continued. The gold will be packed in crates that look like they contain drill bits. I'll have those delivered directly to the train station and get passage as soon as I can to Nikolaevsk, where I'll exchange the crates for the real parts and accompany them back here. We'll do our business and then head straight for America, I promise. I don't like this, Howard. Danny grabbed his arm. If we wait too long, we may not get out until the war is over, and I'm worried about Beatrice. She isn't well, and you're not looking any too healthy yourself. For a time, they were only the sounds of the women tending the fire, the children playing outside, and Danny and her father eating. 
Beatrice watched as lacy snowflakes landed on the window and slowly slid down, piling into a slushy hill at the bottom. I'm just tired, Howard finally said. I'm concerned about Beatrice too, but if she's sick, then putting her back on a train certainly won't help. Between you and Luba, he gestured toward the woman at the fire, B will have better care than money could provide. I'll return in just a few days, I promise. Danny said something else, but Beatrice couldn't make out her words. She'd become enchanted by the little pile of snowflakes on the window. It reminded her of the hill behind her grandmother's house in Minnesota where Papa had first taken her sledding. It seemed she was there, on his lap, with his arms around her. They were at the top of the mound with the white world spread before them, rimmed by a brilliant blue sky. She could hear her father whoop with joy as he pushed off and he started down the slope, slow at first, but then picking up speed until they were flying through the air. They landed with a whoosh of cold snow against her face and a thump that woke her. Again, she looked around. This time, she felt as though she'd been asleep for a long time. Faint memories of Danny and the other woman, Luba, floated through her mind. Like muted scenes from a play, she saw them coax her to sip small spoonfuls of broth. They wiped her forehead and arms with cool cloths and slid ice across her sore lips. She felt a cool breeze on her cheeks and realized the thump had come from the door to the little hut opening and then shutting against the blowing wind outside. The room was almost dark. Glowing embers from the fire cast a dim, shadowy light. She thought she saw movement. And then Danny spoke. Her voice was soft and breathless. Howard, you've been gone so long, I was worried. No response. Howard? Beatrice saw her father stumble to the table and collapse into one of the chairs. He never came. No one ever came to collect the crates. Danny appeared beside him. You sound exhausted. What did you do? He groaned. What could I do? I waited as long as I could without arousing suspicion, but after I had everything loaded and ready to go, I couldn't stay with no good reason to be there. So I came back. Silence. You came back? You mean you came back with the gold? Beatrice wondered why Danny sounded so scared. Howard, now she was angry. How could you? What else could I do? His voice was harsh. I couldn't very well leave it there, could I? He glanced at his daughter and smiled. Look, Beatrice is awake. How is she doing? She comes and goes, but she's not really here. She's not well, love. Danny took his hand and gasped. And neither are you, Howard. You're burning up. When Beatrice opened her eyes again, her father was shivering on a pallet next to hers. Danny laid a cloth on his forehead, but he weakly pushed it away. I'm fine. Take care of B. Papa, Beatrice whispered. He turned his head and smiled at her. Ah, there's my girl. Now, B, listen to me. He touched her cheek. Are you listening? Yes, Papa. It was hard to speak, as if she hadn't done it for a very long time. You have to get better so we can go home. Promise me, B. He ran his tongue across cracked lips. Promise Papa you'll get better. She nodded. I promise. He smiled and closed his eyes. Good girl. And then they slept. When Beatrice next opened her eyes, she saw Danny leaning over Howard, her head close to his. They were whispering softly to each other. I'm so sorry, Danny, Howard said. You were right. We never should have come. I just thought, well, duty and all that. He coughed a deep, rasping cough. Please get Beatrice back home. William is based at the American International Headquarters in Yokohama. Call him when you arrive, and he'll find you a ship bound for San Francisco. Cable mother when you reach Yokohama. She'll meet you in Seattle. Beatrice heard him struggle for breath. She wanted to tell him she loved him and wanted to be with him, not her grandmother. But she was too weak to move or speak. I'm sorry to ask this of you, Howard whispered, but if anyone can get my daughter back to America, it's you, Danny. You're the finest woman I've ever known. I love you. I always have. 
I'm sorry I didn't do right by you. Shh. Danny shook her head and wiped away tears, her tears, from Howard's cheeks. I made my own choices, love. She chuckled softly. Anything's better than boredom. Much later, Beatrice opened her eyes and felt completely awake for the first time in days. Sunlight poured through the little window. The snowy hill and the glass had melted, and Papa was gone. Elise stopped. Michael saw tears in her eyes. He had so many questions, but his wife wasn't concerned about details right then. She smiled at him through her tears. Silly, she said, wiping them away. It was so long ago, and I never even knew Howard or Danny. Graham wasn't at all emotional when she talked about her father's death, but it was like we were there in that awful, strange dream world none of them could escape. Michael moved to the couch and pulled Elise into the warmest embrace he could manage. Finally, he asked, what happened next? She sniffed and returned to her corner. Well, somehow Danny got the two of them back to the States. Graham doesn't remember much of it. She was recovering from smallpox, which should have killed her after all. She recalls being on a small vessel that took them from Vladivostok to Yokohama. I think she remembers it because it was filled with wounded Japanese soldiers. Plus, at one point, they thought it was going to sink. But they made it there, and then they boarded a cargo ship headed to Seattle. You'd think, Michael said carefully, Danny could have booked them more luxurious accommodations. I mean, what happened to the gold? Elise shrugged. Apparently, the gold never made it out of Cheetah. Danny and Luba were afraid to be caught with it. People were being assassinated right and left for much less in those days. Supposedly, the women buried the gold with Howard's body. Buried, he said. In Cheetah? Cram didn't say. I don't know if she knows. But that was when she asked me to find the letter. I've read it many times, though, and it doesn't say anything important. Howard wrote the letter to his mother, and it mostly just talks about Beatrice, how smart she was, how she got along with everyone, what a good little traveler she was, stuff like that. Could be why great-grandma Ione gave it to her. Michael knew the letter. He'd read it, and it was exactly as Elise described, with no valuable information and nothing that appeared to be code, although the writing was odd. The words were spaced erratically, making the page appear to have partial columns with rows running through it. Except for Beatrice's name in bold, capital letters in the very middle of the missive, the letter was written in perfect italic script. He took a sip of tepid coffee. Has your grandmother ever told you why she stopped going by the name Beatrice? Elise nodded. That was Danny's doing. She couldn't figure out how to explain to the customs people in their ports of call why she was traveling alone with a child who was not her own. Back then, children didn't need passports, and under the circumstances, Danny apparently thought it was better to create a persona for Graham that had nothing to do with Howard and his exploits. She told everyone Graham was her daughter, so Graham left the country as a little white girl named Beatrice Viola Dickinson and returned as a biracial girl named Elena Sisk. Her grandmother, Ione, kept the name to ensure Graham's mother never found her, although there is no evidence she ever tried to find her daughter. Eventually, Elena turned into Elaine, and that's the name that stuck. Why Elena? Michael's training constrained him from leaving any question unanswered. Elise smiled. Danny told her Elena was the name of her best friend when she was a child in India. She said it meant bright one. The grandmother turned the letter over and held it up to the light. Do you see it? She was obviously excited, but what did she expect Elise to see? Michael frowned and wished he had a better view, but he knew the words were even less visible than when he'd first read the letter. Was Elise supposed to read the words backward? He'd already tried that. Elise squinted at the paper. Graham, he could tell she was barely containing her frustration. I don't see anything but the words on the other side of the paper. 
Elaine squirmed impatiently in her recliner. No, no, dear. She pulled a well-worn rectangle of paper from the box the letter had come in. It's not the words. It's the space between the words. She held the other piece of paper behind the letter, between it and the lamp. Elise moved in closer and and a surprised exclamation escaped her lips. Michael zoomed the camera focus and recognized the second piece of paper Elaine held as a section of a map of old Cheetah. It was thin and linen-like, obviously much handled, folded, and refolded. With the map behind it, he could see the letter was itself a map. The crazy columnar and horizontal spaces between the words perfectly overlaid and followed the streets of old Cheetah. Elaine smiled and told Elise Beatrice was the X that marked the spot where her father was buried. So you've known all these years where Howard was buried? Elise and Michael spoke at the same time, despite the distance and the camera between them. But Graham, Elise said, how could Howard have written this if he was already dead? Elaine chuckled. He didn't write it. Danny did. I wasn't lying to you. Those are his words, the exact words from the last letter he wrote before he died. But it's not his hand. It's in Danny's. She made the map, so I would always remember where Papa was buried, so I could find him again someday. Papa, Elise said softly, and the gold. Elaine shrugged as if the gold was nothing. Michael thought briefly, but not seriously, I should have killed her years ago. Well, yes, I suppose, she continued. And the documents that proved his innocence, but that's not why I'm showing you this. Elise sat back, a bemused expression on her face. Well, then why? Why show me this now? Because I want you to bury me with him. Graham, Elise laughed, which she always did under stress. What are you talking about? We're laying you to rest in the crypt with mom and grandpa Tobias and the great-grands. Your whole family is there, and I will be there too someday. It's what grandpa wanted. She peered at her grandmother. Remember how he used to smile when he talked about us all being together at the resurrection? Elise started to rise from her seat as if the matter were closed. Elaine grasped Elise by the arm in what was apparently a surprisingly strong grip. With a shocked cry, Elise fell back into the recliner. Listen, Elise. Elaine's voice was urgent. You've always been the strongest one of the family, even if you don't know it, and you've never let anyone down in your life. Don't you dare fail me now. Elise rubbed her arm. Strongest except for you, you mean. I apologize, dear. Elaine patted her hand. I didn't mean to hurt you, but you need to understand how important this is to me. Tobias was a sentimental old fool, and it's why I loved him. But all that rubbish about the resurrection, either we'll be together in heaven in a twinkling of an eye, or we won't. And I hope and fervently believe it's the former, but there's nothing more I can do about it now. A shadow crossed her face. All these years, Papa has lain alone, unmarked, unremembered. And that's not right. You have to promise me, Elise, you'll take me to him. I love him so much. She stopped, seemingly at a loss as to how to make Elise understand the depth of her need. He saved me from a cold, northern, gray life. Mother was a hard woman who cared little for me beyond the work I could do. I would have been nothing more than a scullery maid in her boarding house, which was barely more than a house of ill repute, by the way. And he risked much to give me something else because he loved me. Her voice grew stern. That's what we do in this family, Elise. We risk everything for love. Papa wasn't perfect. He didn't always make the right choices, but he lived for things beyond himself. He lived for his family, for his country, and he lived as honorably as he could manage. She grasped Elise's arm again. I need you and Michael to stand at his grave and remember him for who he was. My papa was the first person to show me what real love was, and I left him behind all these years. Help me make it right, Elise. It's my dying wish. Elise started to say something, but Elaine wasn't finished. She raised her voice. And think about Michael. 
Elise looked puzzled. What could Michael possibly have to do with this? You're his life, Elise. You could never leave him, could you? That would be like leaving a part of yourself behind. And Michael, he would never leave you. He would do anything to keep you with him because he knows he can't survive without you. Michael pulled away from the screen, startled. He shouldn't have been surprised. She'd always been one step ahead of him. She missed nothing. He'd known this from the beginning. But still, as he heard those words crackle through the speakers, as he paused the picture, freezing the triumphant look on her face turned full at his camera, he was astounded by her boldness, her courage. She'd known who he was all along, and now she was letting him in on the joke that had so often made her eyes sparkle when he came into view. Elise was quiet, her head against his shoulder. Without speaking, they watched the train's shadow flow and ripple across the stubbled fields of the Russian countryside. Although an autumn sun followed their journey, the temperatures were already bitterly cold. Yet, Michael could tell, even after all these years abroad, that they would beat the winter snow to Cheetah. He thought back to Elaine's final days, shortly after her conversation with Elise, the one in which she'd finally extracted a promise her ashes would be scattered on her father's grave. Michael pulled up a chair beside her bed. Elise was downstairs in the kitchen, preparing dinner. Have you always known? He asked, without preamble. She'd been confined to her bed for days. The excitement of revealing the secret she'd hidden for so long seemed to have consumed what little life remained in her frail body. She laid very still, eyes closed, but then she smiled. Always, she said softly. I knew the day you started watching me, just as I knew when your predecessor came and went. And my relationship with Elise? You encouraged it. I may not be as smart as you, Elaine, but that's one thing I'm sure about. She shifted on her pillow. You know what they say, keep your friends close and your enemies. Besides, I liked you, Michael, and I knew you'd fall in love with her. Who wouldn't? She's amazing, he finished, without thinking. Elaine opened her eyes, and in them was her old smile. Yes, she said, but I don't understand why you needed her. Every conversation must have been recorded. You've become very good over the years at saying things without actually saying them, haven't you, Elaine? Elise helped me read between the lines. She thought about that. Finally, she nodded. How do you know I won't leave her now, he asked. You must realize this is what we've been waiting for all this time. Elaine set her jaw, and their eyes locked. She shrugged. I don't know. But what can it matter now? I can't be the only reason you're here. No, he shook his head. I make other connections. Is there even anyone who still remembers me? My handler in London. And he would notice, if you just mentioned casually that I'd passed away, he doesn't have more important things to think about. It was a rhetorical question. She was obviously sure of the answer, and Michael was even more sure she was right. Besides, she continued, it's a lot of money, yes, but to the great empire of Russia, a drop in the bucket. Michael's turned to smile. She didn't know all the secrets. What makes you think I'm Russian? He lifted an eyebrow as her eyes widened, as she began to understand. Dozens of nationalities were recruited into the Secret Service. When the USSR dissolved, many of them returned to their homes and took with them the secrets they'd learned. For some of those governments in the early 1900s, and for factions within those governments, the stash would have been enough to take over a country. Can you imagine what that gold would be worth today? He grinned. And maybe I'm British or American. They know about the gold too. Or maybe I just want it for myself. Luba probably dug it up after we left, she said smugly. There's no way she or some member of her family wouldn't have eventually succumbed to that kind of temptation. They weren't the only Russians who knew about the gold. 
Michael crossed his arms. The one who initiated the whole scheme eventually came looking for it. Regretfully, it appears Luba and her family didn't survive the uh, search. For just a moment, Michael allowed himself to gloat. He held information she hadn't thought of, but the feeling soon soured. He'd grown to admire the grandmother too much to enjoy the look of uncertainty in her eyes. His victory was short-lived anyway. Elise doesn't need any gold, Elaine said matter-of-factly. I've left her everything. You'll both live very comfortably for the rest of your lives. You can never get that gold out without exposing yourself and her to danger. She paused. You've spent too much of your life wandering around the maze of her psyche, insinuating yourself into her heart, into both our hearts, and now you're stuck. You thought to trap us, Michael, but you're the one who's trapped and you know it. You seem awfully sure of yourself. She chuckled. No, no, it's not me I'm sure of, it's love. There is no other viable option. Now, she said, suddenly all business. I've answered all the questions. Your turn to help me. Please tell me they gave you something to make my death quick and painless. Michael nodded, and she breathed a deep sigh of relief. Thank God. Quick, painless, and untraceable, he said. But Elise would never forgive me, you know that. Would she need the details? Her voice was weakening. He considered that thought, but in the end, it was no good. He couldn't bring himself to create one more secret he had to keep from Elise, not even to spare the grandmother pain. She sighed, resigned. Will you tell her who you really are? She doesn't know. You haven't told her? Michael searched the grandmother's face, hoping beyond hope his secret was safe. She moved her head back and forth against the pillow. I've not told her, and I won't. But you can't discount the fact she has Dickinson blood in her veins. We don't miss much. I think, Elaine continued, her voice as feeble as her face was pale. Elise knows you love her, and that's all she really cares to know. My question is, how much do you love her? He leaned forward. What do you mean? Elaine made an irritated sound. Oh, Michael, for a spy, you see so little. Is it too much for me to ask for a great-grandchild out of all of this? It's the least you could do for us. He grinned. We'll see. The vision of a very different life than he'd ever dreamed could exist for him and Elise was still materializing. He was no longer sure he controlled any part of their future. You see to it, Michael, Elaine responded in a stronger cowboy-up tone of voice. I'm done. She turned her head and closed her parchment-thin lids. Soon, she appeared to be sleeping contentedly, and true to her word, she was done. Speeding on a train toward an unmarked grave at the edge of a cemetery in Old Chita, Michael thought about how quiet he and Elise were with each other now. He had no more reason to question her, and she seemed happily lost in her own thoughts. Anything but boredom? Anything? He could dig up the gold, which was what he'd prepared his entire adult life to do. He didn't need his handler in London. He knew whom to call. He had names and numbers from the old days. They would put him in touch with the right people. Even though everyone else had forgotten, when the story was told, he would be hailed as a hero in a home he no longer knew. Yet to fulfill his mission, he'd have to leave Elise behind, which would most likely mean her death. She knew too much. He closed his eyes. The grandmother, as usual, was right. There was no life without this blonde head on his shoulder these fingers entwined in his. He said her name softly. Elise? Yes? What are you thinking about? When she didn't answer, he wondered if she'd hurt him. But then she lifted her head, looked into his eyes, and smiled. I was thinking about children.
Thank you, Lisa. That's a great story and good reading, too. Thanks so much for doing that. That's going to end the podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.